So through the Advent season, we have been lighting the candles of hope and of peace, of joy, of love. And now today, in the season of Christmas, we light the Christ candle to celebrate the birth of the Christ child, not only in a little village some 2,000 years ago, but in our lives today. In the lectionary readings, the cycle of gospel and scripture readings for the church year, uh, the first Sunday after Christmas usually contains one of the stories of the events following uh, Jesus' birth. Today we'll look at one of the passages from Matthew um, when Mary and Joseph bring the child uh, to the temple for the blessing and offering of thanks to God for Jesus' birth. In the response of Simeon and Anna, two ancients who've been waiting for the consolation of Israel. One of the other readings uh, that often comes up in the cycle is the slaughter of the innocents, which was literally that. You may remember that the Magi had predicted to Herod that a, a new king was to be born in Bethlehem. No king wants to hear that a new king is coming. And while he played as though he was in favor of this event, in fact, he conspired to remove any possible threat uh, to his throne. The angel warned Joseph of this pending threat, and Mary and Joseph and the babe fled into Egypt. Herod sent his troops to destroy all the children under the age of two in the region of Bethlehem. A horrible, horrific, but not unique event, neither in the ancient world nor in our own lives today. In China, the children of Uyghur people, who are Muslims, are being incarcerated and drawn into concentration camps which are located in high-rise buildings, heavily beset by the hand of the Chinese authorities and being re-educated to deny their identity culturally and their faith as sons of Abraham. In Syria, Children and families, having previously been literally bombed by their own government, now reside in refugee camps, inadequate uh, shelter and inadequate food and clothing. There is no place colder than a desert in the winter. So the Christ candle is not just for the events in the past. It reminds us of our responsibility as the body of Christ, the birth of Christ in our own lives, to respond to this unfolding and perennial human need. Look at the uh, insert in your bulletin, please, and see all the memorial gifts and gifts in honor of our loved ones. Um, these have all gone to help shed the light of the Christ candle um, to Syrian refugees and uh, to people in our own neighborhood who are hungry and uh, those who are ill-clad in a cold and increasingly cold uh, winter. Uh, the ways in which we reach out through actual clothes and food, uh, and all the gifts of toys for children who would otherwise have gone without, uh, the remarkable support for veterans of the cross. This is a testimony uh, to your love for those who have gone before us and who are near to you even still, but also, perhaps more importantly, a testimony to your uh, commitment to be the Christ in the world uh, who is born into our lives. So this day, as we remember uh, those who suffer, we recognize that we are called uh, and empowered um, as disciples of Jesus to follow in his way, 
and so fulfill uh, the dreams of God for humanity. The words of Simeon and Anna, um, Lord, let me depart in peace, for I have seen your redemption. Thanks be to God for the Christ child and for you and for your abiding commitment to live um, in the ways that he has given to us. Amen. So then let us uh, welcome the proclamation of God's word as we turn um, to the scripture, standing to sing glory to the creator, the Christ, the Holy Spirit, three in one. And so the gospel lesson from Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 22 and continuing uh, through verse 40. The time had come for Mary and Joseph for their purification according to the law of Moses, and so they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord, and so they offered a sacrifice according to what was stated in the law of the Lord, quote, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel. The Holy Spirit rested upon Simeon. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took the baby in his arms and praised God, saying, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And the baby's father and mother, Joseph and Mary, were amazed at what was being said about Jesus. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, This child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed, so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Now there was also a prophet named Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age, like Simeon, having lived with her husband for seven years after their marriage, 
and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped there with fasting and prayer night and day. At the moment that she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had finished everything according to the law of the Lord, Mary and Joseph and the babe returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Amen. Imagine the scene. Mary and Joseph having traveled from Nazareth far in the north, um, Joseph presumably by tradition on foot, and Mary on a donkey, for she was heavy with child. And they're going all the way from the north, across the treacherous uh, sands and rocky hills, to Bethlehem, because the emperor has ordered that everyone go to their hometown, the land of their family, to be registered, to be enrolled in a census for the purposes of taxation, so the army that was in place could continue to occupy the land and control the people. Imagine how exhausted they were and how terrified, afraid Mary must have been, particularly when they arrived in Bethlehem. There was no place. And they ended up in very rude circumstances, um, giving birth alone. Um, Imagine the true human quality about what's been unfolding poor and dispossessed, displaced, uncertain of what their future would be, trying to discern and understand what God's purpose is in their life. Every child is a miracle, right? But when God attends to you before the child is born and says, this will be the savior of the world, well, I mean, forget about pre-K. And so then, from Bethlehem, they make their way up, and it is literally up a very steep climb from Bethlehem, which is very deep, valley, up to Jerusalem, which was the high point of all Judea, to go to the temple to do what is required. Now, they sacrifice. The law really requires a sacrifice of a lamb, which is available only to people of pretty considerable wealth. Or if you don't have a lamb you can buy two turtle doves or two pigeons. Wouldn't you like to get rid of some pigeons? The poor people could buy two turtle doves. These were in the same courts that Jesus would cleanse some 30 years later in his life when he cleansed the temple and overturned the money changes and those who sold animals. It's a very complex story. So these two individuals... Ragtag, hungry, tired, perhaps confused, but fulfilling the mandates of the law, Simeon sees them, and he knows not only do they look confused and certainly out of place, but they're poor. He knows that because they're sacrificing the two pigeons or two turtle doves, not a lamb. So Simeon has the grace and the spiritual insight to see in these two individuals the one who had been promised by God 
the Lord's Messiah. That is to say, someone who was anointed for the purpose of the salvation of Israel, the exaltation of the people of Israel, and a revelation to the Gentiles. You have to have deep wisdom, real humility, and a profound sense of anticipation to see in these poor individuals the promise of God's glory, the presence of God's light and love. The scholars like to say that God has a predisposition for the poor. And that's certainly true in this story of Simeon and of Anna. He is not like the great King David, you know, who will march into the army, into the city at the head of an army, or like the Solomon who would build the temple following his father, who's as rich as any person on the face of the earth. Simeon has the wisdom, the insight, the spiritual acuity to recognize that in these poor people, the purposes of God, the dream of God, the vision of God are met. You know, we live in a world that is really largely uh, created in terms of our religious life, but also in our moral and sociological expectations, largely driven by a misunderstanding of the theology of the 16th century reformer, John Calvin. Most of us think in America, without even thinking about it, that if you are rich, if you are successful, you have been blessed by God that God has chosen you, blessed you, anointed you, set you aside, and so therefore you have been rich, become rich. And we inherently, naturally look to those who are poor and wonder what it is that they did to suffer that fate. A lack of the blessings by God and an inability to exercise their own natural gifts to achieve wealth. We come up with a theological, spiritual justification for the financial and economic and social disparities of our world. So very few of us, myself included, would be looking for someone who is poor and bereft who would be the salvation of the world. But this is exactly what's happening. And so Anna, at the age of 87, takes the babe and says, this is the fulfillment of God's love and purpose. So the outer circumstances of our life are not, in the understanding of Scripture, to be the product of divine favor or disfavor. In fact, those of high estate are called to respond to the needs and the aspirations of those of low estate. This is what Jesus will do throughout his entire life. Who does he hang out with? Who does he eat with? Who does he minister to? There's absolutely no ambiguity about it. He loves and befriends rich people too, but the major emphasis of his ministry are to people who are despised, who are left, who are cast aside, who are left behind. They didn't kill Jesus because he was advocating 
the sustaining of the prevailing economic and social order. Right? He called all of these things into question. He called us to a higher understanding, a deeper appreciation of the order that's esteemed and dreamed of and called for by God and embodied in Jesus Christ. These ancients, who have enough wisdom to have reflected deeply on life and particularly on the insights of the scriptures, find in this poor couple, this struggling family, the deep insight that God is present in all the circumstances of our lives. When things are going well, God is with us, and especially when things are not going well, God is surely with us and for us. So Paul, when he becomes the great apostle to the Gentiles, will say that the church is the body of Christ. We become the incarnation of God's purposes in the world. And in the body of Christ, there's neither rich nor poor, male nor female, Jew nor Greek, but we are one in Jesus. Make no mistake, to celebrate the Christ's birth, to become engaged with him as members of the body of Christ, means that we are called to continue his ministry, to upend the prevailing order, to reestablish God's vision for the world. When the needs of all are met, the privileges and perquisites and power is evenly distributed, that we are all one in Christ. Amen.